0: Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. This week, we're kicking off the show with a special roundtable to talk about Elon Musk's rocky takeover of Twitter and what that means for the future of Black Twitter. I've invited show contributor and Washington Post columnist Karen Atia to lead the conversation. Take it away, Karen.
1: Thanks, Farai. I am super excited to be here. So each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sipping the Political Tea. And joining me this week is Professor Sarah J. Jackson, Presidential Associate Professor at the University of Pennsylvania and co-author of Hashtag Activism, Networks of Race and Gender Justice. Welcome, Professor Jackson.
2: Thanks so much for having me, to both of you.
1: And of course, our very own Farai Chidea, creator and host of Our Body Politic, is joining us today.
0: Hey, Farai. Hey, hey, Karen! And I'm very proud of you for your powerlifting. Just you know, the whole superhero Karen Atia, as opposed to the journalist Karen Atia.
1: You know, it's one and the same. And I think we're we're all just trying to train for the apocalypse. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, that's, so that's what I tell people. So
2: true. <laughs>
1: So speaking of trying to be in safe spaces, um, this week we are discussing the significance of Black Twitter and how Elon Musk's ownership of the social media platform could affect its future. For those who don't know, Black Twitter is an informal internet community that uses the platform to draw attention to issues affecting Black communities. And I think, you know, when we talk about black Twitter, I just think about when I started using the platform maybe about a decade ago. And I remember it was just a real source of community and support. I remember the days of like hashtag natural hair Twitter and how bloggers and YouTubers and just us kind of regular, you know, black women who were deciding to do the big chop and stop relaxing our hair. We would come together, I think, every Sunday and just tweet with each other about how we were taking care of our hair, what products we were using, what techniques we were doing, what types of, you know, 4A, 4C, 3B coily hair, Mm -hmm. all those things. And honestly, it helped me learn how to take care of my own hair and my own self, right? And that's just a real foundational um, memory for me when it comes to Black Twitter. So I'm curious about the both of you guys, and I'll start with you, Professor Jackson. Can you Tell us a little bit about your experience with Black Twitter.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I joined Twitter, I want to say, around 2011. And one of the first things I really remember from Black Twitter was actually an activist campaign um, to try to stop the execution of Troy Davis. And Troy Davis Mm. was a death row inmate. And there was really a lot of questions about whether or not his prosecution and his sentencing had had been ethical. And, of course, generally, you know, I'm in the camp of people who thinks the death penalty is wrong regardless. But I remember, like, seeing this thing happen online in the lead up to his execution where there was a lot of activism happening. And it was a lot of really ordinary people, um, young Black folks, you know, like me, who had day jobs or whatever, but were using the time and the moment on the computer to tweet about Troy Davis and to use the hashtag Troy Davis and to really try to start letter writing campaigns and uh, writing to congressmen, you know, making phone calls to try to get this execution halted. And it wasn't successful, which I remember was very, very heartbreaking. Troy Davis was executed. But I remember that was one of the first moments where I realized that, you know, Twitter could really be used not just to create community, but also to create change, and that Black users were particularly really finding each other and coalescing around fun issues, but also really important political issues.
1: I do remember that whole episode in a way, and it was it was extremely powerful, even despite the outcome of everything. How about you, Farai? What are your memories and thoughts about some of the early days and your early experiences?
0: Well, I have been on Twitter for ages. I joined in January 2009. Mm. Call me an OG. But the seminal moment for me was I spent a year DMing with a white nationalist during and after the 2016 election. And he taught me so much about what was happening in this country. And he actually liked my reporting. He was like, you see us. And I was like, yes, I do. Mm. (laughs) And I feel like that was one of the big failures of— reporting generally, is that people did not see the influence of white nationalism on politics, and I couldn't get my editors at a certain publication to really take that seriously. I had asked on Twitter recently, what do you call someone— Where you have emotional intimacy, but you're not friends. And a lot of people are like, why wouldn't you call them a friend? And it's this guy. And Mm. someone said, trauma buddy. And I was like, that's it. We were both Mm. traumatized. Mm. And we did trauma bonding, even though we were on different sides of the same culture war. But I loved the fact that he was open enough to talk to me. And he went to Charlottesville. And I saw his mental health degrade. We talked a lot about his mental health. He said he had agoraphobia and depression and all these things. And um, I saw his mental health change from the nature of his writing. And um, that was a, a front seat to history that Twitter facilitated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds fascinating. And I think probably
1: a lot of us, our digital connections probably really are over a good amount of trauma, honestly. All right. So then that takes us to today in the current moment. So billionaire Elon Musk acquired (laughs) Twitter in late October for $44 billion. Jeez. -hmm. He says he plans to increase the company's revenue to $26.4 billion by 2028, up from $5 billion last year. So pretty big jump. Musk began his overhaul by laying off thousands of workers, specifically executives, and about half the staff. Some of those layoffs included the entire human rights team, members of the child safety team, which is the team tasked with removing child sexual abuse material, and members of the accessibility team. So it's just been a scorched earth takeover so far. So Farai, I'm just curious to your reaction to, you know, Musk's new Twitter regime um, thus far?
0: Well, first of all, if it's like a zero stars to five stars, it's zero stars for this. (laughs) Um, And then I would point to an incredible newsletter by Brandeis Marshall, who is a black data scientist. She writes this incredible newsletter called Rebel Tech, which is uh, she describes as our safe space to critique data and tech algorithms. And she points out that all of these executives basically fleeing what might be a sinking ship or at least as a listing ship— um, is ahead of an FTC compliance report. So she puts it, they decided to walk away and Elon Musk wanted to retain that company product services knowledge. And so basically, regulators are going to be in a state of panic to even find the data to understand what Twitter is doing. And in terms of protection from rampant human rights abuses, we don't really see any. All of which is to say the way that Compliance teams are being hollowed out is not just about hurt feelings of Black women or, you know, air quotes, snowflakes. It's about civil society. It's about stability. Yeah, it's it's a really kind of
1: unsteady moment when it comes to just our democracy, you know. Professor Jackson, yeah, what's your take on all this?
2: I absolutely agree with Farai. This is really serious. And I mean, I think there's a few things. Uh, you know, first off, Elon Musk we knew right black users on twitter scholars who have studied twitter we knew that the space was never an altruistic space right it was never a space that was designed to be used or or maintained for us but we made it that and users really made it a lot of the wonderful things that it has been in terms of creating public discourse in terms of influencing popular culture in terms of influencing politics But with Elon Musk coming in, it really has become an antagonistic space because he's become this sort of antagonistic figure. And that list of... Folks that he has laid off, which not just includes the human rights team, but also includes people from the trust and safety team, which were like the folks who were tasked with reviewing um, issues around hate speech and other things, really indicates how antagonistic he is towards sort of a particular group and particular groups of people. And we've seen this in his own tweets where, you know, he's reinstated folks who have previously been banned from Twitter because... They've tweeted conspiracy theories or they've sympathized with Nazis or they've engaged in other forms of hate speech. But at the same time, many accounts on the left have been recently suspended. And so we're seeing sort of this move by Elon Musk, which really feels, I think, both to lay observers and users, but also to those of us who study the platform, like a very clear and intentional attempt to shift the types of public discourse um, that happen on the site. And, you know, part of that, I think we have to say, is a reflection of real intellectual dishonesty on the part of Musk, because he came in saying that he was sort of this like free speech savior activist, you know, that he wanted to make the site free. But what he really meant by that, it's become pretty clear, is that he wanted to make it a space where people on the right felt comfortable but he's not as comfortable with himself being critiqued i mean we've seen mm-hmm. we've seen that in how he's reacted to people critiquing him right on the site and how he's reacted even to his employees critiquing him which is often by firing them but also just the, the way that both the internal choices of who to fire who to push out, and the actual way that he's using and supporting the site have really reflected something I think that is very, very concerning in terms of the shift in what kinds of discourse are welcome on Twitter. And, you know, I've talked to several former Twitter employees, both those who have been fired and some who have chosen to resign, and a lot of them tell me that they're not sure that... um, Elon Musk is as sort of like maniacal or Machiavellian as we might think. Like a lot of them feel like, oh, he just has a lot of hubris and he thinks that the things he's doing are going to make Twitter hot again. Um, but clearly they're actually, in my opinion, you know, s- suppressing speech on the site and making it a less enjoyable and I think less democratic space. But I'm not sure that I agree with that assessment. It does feel like from his own insistence on making himself a main character that he really has a particular political agenda. I mean, I think the fact that he tweeted that conspiracy story about Nancy Pelosi's husband after he was attacked in their home, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, was just outrageous, reflects that whatever media and ideas he's consuming are ones that we should really be concerned about. And I think that that does concern, you know, everyone.
0: That was Washington Post columnist Karen Atia leading Sippin' the Political Tea with Sarah J. Jackson, presidential associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and me, the host and creator of Our Body Politic. Coming up next, more about the future of Black Twitter and Elon Musk's Rocky Takeover. Plus, co-CEO and president of Ariel Investments, Melody Hobson, on the importance of financial literacy and building intergenerational wealth in the Black community. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the latest on Twitter and the future of Black Twitter in a special roundtable led by show contributor and Washington Post columnist Karen Atia with University of Pennsylvania presidential associate professor Sarah J. Jackson. Let's listen. Twitter has
1: been sometimes a hellhole for women and women of color for a while, you know, way before this takeover. According to a 2017 crowdsourcing data analyzed by Amnesty International and Element AI, which is a global artificial intelligence software product company, women of color, so including Black women, Asian women, Latinx women, mixed-race women, were 34% more likely to be mentioned in abusive or problematic tweets than white women. And according to the study, Black women in particular were 84% more likely than white women to be mentioned in abusive or problematic tweets. And, you know, just as a side note, this is five years old, this data. So surely the exact percentages might have changed from 2017 to now. But I'm sure, you know, as the three of us, as as women, Black women on this platform, we've, we've seen probably this abuse ourselves, you know, just being... On the platform, having opinions, particularly a political opinion. So I'm curious, like this idea of free speech, like what does this mean for us and our safety specifically on this platform?
2: Yeah, I think one thing, that study is absolutely right. And that study sort of reaffirms something that those of us, like you said, who have been Black women on the internet already do, right? Which was that we are subjected to a type of abuse and backlash for speaking out, Um, sometimes about things we don't even realize are controversial, that our colleagues um, often aren't. That's absolutely the case. But I do want to say, like, one of the remarkable things about Black Twitter and about Black women Twitter users in particular is that they have really been on the vanguard on the front lines of pushing not just Twitter but other social media platforms as well, but especially Twitter, to integrate better sort of trust and safety policies, to have better uh, responses to hate speech, to have better sort of like report and review policies uh, to avoid various forms of abuse. Now, you're right. It was never a perfect place. It was always a place where folks were subjected to abuse and these other sort of forms of hate online. But a lot of the progress that had been made to address those things were because of Black users and often Black women users really speaking out and talking about their experiences online. And so I think when we connect this to this question of so-called free speech, you know, what we really see now and what I'm really worried about is self-censorship. Which is Mm -hmm. to say, Mm -hmm. as people increasingly feel like the owner of the space, the powerful billionaire owner of the space, is antagonistic to their identities— and as they see that person try to mainstream people who essentially have you know fascist and and other forms of very like scary and problematic politics I think people will increasingly either leave or be more careful about how they tweet and what they tweet about. So people will lock their accounts. People will hesitate to tweet um, about hot topics or about politics or about controversial issues because they'll be more concerned that they will be subjected to hate speech and and brigading and sort of other forms of online harassment. And I think that that self-censorship is something that is really already changing the way that people are using the site. And I think that's kind of the exact opposite of what you want if you support, you know, and believe in free speech.
1: Farai, I'm curious about your take. I mean, you mentioned obviously earlier about, you know, connecting with someone who is involved in white nationalism. So, and obviously you've been following extremism super closely on the show. So, you know, how are you seeing this sort of unregulated, supposedly free speech ethos now, on Twitter?
0: Well, first of all, you know, the the whole concept of free speech is about the relationship of citizens to government. Mm. The First Amendment protects citizen speech and non-citizen speech from government censorship. It does not talk about private companies. So when Elon Musk talks about free speech, he can talk all day and all night. But that is not actually relevant in a legal construct to the debate over what gets on the platform. And I think Here, let's just be real, the platform doesn't really care uh, about whether or not black women are safe, but the platform cares about advertising. And advertisers are like, oh, crap. What you're seeing is advertisers just backing away slowly from the dumpster fire. And Elon Musk's problem is not with the First Amendment. It's with advertisers who are afraid that their customers are going to be scared off the platform. And that is something that every billionaire should respect is a financial transaction. I personally have very mixed feelings about deplatforming. The white supremacist who I corresponded with was deplatformed several times for violation of terms of service. And he used his Twitter accounts like burner phones. He would just create a new one and he would find me again. And I would be findable because I wanted to be findable. So, you know, it's a a question for me of... What is the porous nature of having speech that actually is additive to social debates? But the free speech thing is a red herring because the whole construct of free speech is about the Constitution and the federal government and government censorship. Elon Musk is not here to cape for black women, but (laughs) his company better cape for advertising if they want to stay alive. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, first off, right on, you know, I mean, the point about
2: free speech and what the First Amendment is, of course, right, Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily even apply here. So it is a red herring in the conversation that I think sometimes successfully distracts us. But this point about, of course, Elon Musk doesn't necessarily care about Black women, obviously. The former owners and, you know, engineers and designers maybe didn't either and probably didn't either. But I think, to your point about advertisers, not just advertisers, but also relevance, cultural and political relevance, I mean, I think we should point out that whether or not, you know, the folks that designed Twitter cared about Black women, Black women made the site relevant in many ways. Amen. It, Absolutely. it was it was Amen. black women who made the who who many times created the hashtags or the memes or the mm-hmm. you know popular culture like shortcuts or sayings or the mashups or whatever that made it into you know the primetime news cycle or that made it into you know that television show or that became you know an episode of law and order it was often us who were driving the reason that Twitter became such a sensation and became something that journalists and politicians and advertisers flocked to because we made it cool.
1: You're listening to Sip in the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I'm Karen Atiyah. This week, we are discussing the future of Black Twitter with Farai Chidea, creator and host of Our Body Politic, And Sarah J. Jackson, Presidential Associate Professor at the University of Pennsylvania and co-author of Hashtag Activism, Networks of Race and Gender Justice. All right, ladies, let's talk about Black Twitter and the impact of it, and particularly how Black women have really impacted the conversations and hashtags and movements through Twitter. So um, Professor Jackson, you've written a book about hashtag activism. Tell us you know, a little bit more about that and how you see how those hashtags and campaigns and conversations have been so successful.
2: I think there's so many examples of this. You know, the most obvious ones, of course, are the hashtag Black Lives Matter and the hashtag Me Too, both of which, you know, originated with work on and offline that Black women were doing. But there's countless other examples, both in politics and popular culture. Um, we can think about the hashtag Oscars So White that was a form mm-hmm. of, you know, media critique about representation and the Oscars and many, many others that have really engaged important Uh, cultural and political moments and conversations over the last decade, really. And so that, I mean, that is one of the things we talk about um, in the book, uh, hashtag activism, is even Me Too, which of course became a sensation, there were all these Black women on Twitter before Me Too who were engaging in these sort of feminist hashtags, conversations about power, conversations about inequality, conversations about sexism, with hashtags like Survivor Privilege and Why I Stayed and Say Her Name and You OK Sis and, you know, Girls Like Us. There's so many of Mm -hmm. these. And in many ways, the networks that were created through these hashtags and the conversations really laid the groundwork for something like Me Too going viral later. And so we see that, you know, over and over again where there are particular sets of users and they often are women of color. They often are black women in solidarity with other folks, but who are really sort of leading these conversations. That I think have um, really, really seeped into and shifted a lot of cultural discourse in America over the last 10 years.
1: I'm also kind of curious, um, Farai, or to both of you, even about the, the conversations that we have intra community, like right. whether it's colorism, whether it's issues of, you know, I mentioned hair at the beginning, but even the, the evolution of kind of hair politics within our community. Um, I'm just curious how you see that and how we use that as a way to talk to each other about our own issues.
0: For me, as someone who, like you, has a very um, generationally close connection to Africa, you know, in my case, through my dad only, I also just love the fact that for me, Black Twitter is primarily Black American Twitter but also gets into South African Twitter, Zimbabwean Twitter, um, West African Twitter, you know. And when I'm up in the wee hours of the morning, as I sometimes am, then it puts me in a position where I can see in real time what's happening in Black Twitter from other parts of the world. And I love the global community. And there's Black British Twitter, you know. Mm -hmm. There was, you -hmm. know, a big to-do about a British woman who runs a wonderful organization and who was basically grilled by a member of the royal family on where she was from. She's like, I am from here, ma'am. So, Whoa. you know, it's just, yeah, it's just one of these things where, to me, Black Twitter, you know, in addition to the brilliant Oscars So White and all of the different influential hashtags that come out of Black American Twitter is a global Black Twitter.
1: So this comes back, to, man, I, to a certain extent, we've got to do it, but I hate Having to center Elon Musk, but let's talk about <laughs> what King Elon's reign is meaning right now. Since Musk's takeover, we've had notable public figures leave Twitter. Some of those have included Whoopi Goldberg, Shonda Rhimes, Tony Braxton, and recently the New Yorker writer Jelani Cobb. Um, a few weeks ago, Black Twitter, we had, we had kind of a hilarious quote unquote funeral for the platform. We were asking each other, you know, what we were we going to wear? To mm-hmm. the home, going like who is bringing what food? Like to Twitter, <laughs> like is the casket? Who who did the body? Like yep. stuff like that, um, which was which was hilarious. But I think representative of kind of uh, the enormousness, the the kind of a really big hole that would remain if Twitter and Black Twitter, along with it, were to not be here anymore. The humor, I think, is what we loved about Black Twitter. And I'm just curious, you know, maybe personally for you, what do you feel like you would mourn if Black Twitter were to not be a thing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways I'm already mourning not just Black Twitter, but also, you know, there's, uh, you know, I won't name this person because the reason that they, you know, restricted their account was not to be, you know, as public anymore, but a person from disability Twitter just, you know, locked her account and I'm on it. But I wanted to retweet something and I couldn't. And I was like, what's happening? And then I was like, oh, what's happening is that she's locked her account. And I will miss the ability to be part of the flow of information and to retweet people who don't even leave the platform, but who are taking a step back from being on the front lines. So, To
1: that end, in terms of the choice to restrict or the choice to leave, Farai,
0: are you you staying? Are you going? I'm 100% staying, and I'm keeping my profile public, but what I'm doing is I'm basically sweeping my account every, you know— two to four weeks and deleting my tweet history. You know, it's not that, I mean, basically a lot of different people archive tweets. And fun fact, among the people who archive tweets are foreign agents from places like Russia and China that look at political speech to try to manipulate it and do disinformation. So I probably have, you know, a little bit of a Twitter archive internationally um, as well as domestic extremists. You know, So, so let's just be real about what this is. This is, you are putting yourself out there on the digital digital corner when you post, but, you know, just as a matter of practice, I'm trying to do a little more hygiene, but I'm staying. Okay.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this question and I actually, I also
0: saw your article, Why I'm Not Leaving Twitter. I ain't going. Karen Atiyah, Washington Post. Yeah, man.
1: (laughs) I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote that because I was having a lot of conversations with both black folk and white folk. I I noticed anecdotally, very anecdotally that a lot of my um, white liberal friends were freaking out about Elon Musk taking over the platform. They were like, this is about to be a cesspool of racism and conspiracy theories and misogyny. And like, we can't take it. We're going to go flee and find somewhere else. And for me, you know, anybody who's followed my career over the last few years— knows (laughs) that I have gotten my fair share of abuse, of Mm -hmm. racism, of sexism, of literal um, governments coming after me on Twitter. And, um, you know, as we mentioned before, you know, black women were more likely to get abused. And yet I want to stay, I guess, because I, first of all, I'm like, my friends are still here. My community is still here. That's what I care more about. And about reaching people here. And I also, um, maybe, you know, for better or worse, just being used to operating in hostile environments in the real world, really, and having to navigate, having to think about modulating behavior, speech, uh, just navigating difficult spaces. So to me, I'm like, we've been doing this. Um, it might get, you know, really difficult, but this is an extremely powerful tool, particularly for Black women that we've seen over the last decade or so. And the idea that we would abandon a powerful tool, yes, it's a tool for extremists and terrorists and, and all of that, but it's a powerful tool for us. And I just, you know, believe that any tool we have that can, we can use for our own power, we should retain. That's how I feel about it. So to close out, Professor Jackson, are you going or are you staying (laughs) on Twitter?
2: For now, I am staying for many of the reasons that you just outlined. I think when we have built so much of the good things about a place, we can hold the reality that there are bad things about the place. But also it's really hard to leave that very, very, very real community and very real potential that um, Black folks have built on the website. And I have great respect and admiration for many of the people who've chosen to leave, and I understand why. But I'm very skeptical that this sort of community that we had can be created elsewhere, at least at the moment. And that isn't to say that we won't figure it out later, but for now, I feel like I want to see what happens. However, I will say that I did lock my account. Um, It was always public before, but I did lock it a few weeks ago. And I am tweeting less um, because I am nervous about, about what's happening. And so, like, I think I'm one of the case in points of people who are using it differently but are still reticent to go.
1: I hear you. I hear you. But the point is, we're still here and we're not going anywhere for now. All right. But for today, at least for this episode, we will have to wrap up. Thank you both. Thank you, Professor Jackson, for joining today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been great.
0: And Farai, of course, thank you so much for joining. Well, I I am really looking forward to hearing even more Karen Atiyah on Our Body Politic with you in what I call the bossy seat. The bossy seat. I like it. That was sipping the Political Tea led by Karen Atiyah, show contributor and Washington Post columnist with Sarah J. Jackson, University of Pennsylvania presidential associate professor, and me, Farai Chidea, the host and creator of Our Body Politic. Coming up next, we revisit a 2015 conversation from my old podcast, One with Farai, on building financial literacy in the Black community and leading as a Black woman in finance with Melody Hobson, co-CEO and president of Ariel Investments. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic, I'm Farai Chidea. Today we're looking at making space for black women. So we're revisiting a conversation I had in 2015 on my former podcast One with Farai with the co-CEO and President of Aerial Investments, Melody Hobson. Hobson has over 30 years of experience working at Aerial Investments, one of the most prominent African-American owned money management companies in the United States. Since I interviewed her, Hobson has broken even more barriers. She was named the first Black woman to head the Economic Club of Chicago in 2017, and the first Black woman to be a chairperson of an S&P 500 company when she became the vice chair at Starbucks in 2018, and then later the chairwoman in 2021. And this year, she became one of the first Black women to be part owner of an NFL team, just to name a few of her accomplishments. Let's take a listen back to
3: how she got her start from my 2015 interview. As a child, I was desperate to understand money. And that was a function of you know a roller coaster kind of life with money, where my mom was an entrepreneur and so special and so hardworking, but things didn't always work out. And that had consequences. For us that were at times as a child, especially where you feel like you have no control, you know, very destabilizing. And it could be everything from being evicted to getting our phone disconnected. And so as a result of that, I was in search of security and understanding. So that's why I ended up in the financial services business. And that's why I feel this way that I feel about financial literacy in our society. I've said many times, my life's mission is to make the stock market a subject of dinner table conversation in the black community, because I want that awareness to be there so that we can have greater opportunity for financial success. And regardless how you feel about the markets over the long term, the stock market has been the best overall investment since nineteen twenty six that doesn't mean there aren't going to be bad years or really bad years like two thousand and eight, but over the long term it's been the best place to be but we have largely as a community African Americans and to similar extent Hispanic Americans have not participated in this to the same degree as our white counterparts, which has left us with less financial security lower retirement accounts, lower total net worth
0: so I read an article with you Melody, where you talk about basically going to the funeral of John Johnson, the founder of Ebony and Jet, and having an epiphany about how you viewed yourself and how you operate in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Well, this happened more than a decade ago, and I was sitting at his funeral, which was, you know, an amazing experience because he's a legend as an entrepreneur in our society, but certainly as well in the African-American community. And he had, there were a series of eulogies And one of the people who gave a eulogy was Tom Joyner, who is a well-known disc jockey. He's known as the Fly Jock. And in talking about John Johnson, he said that he was unapologetically black. And when he said it, it landed really hard for me. And I sat there in my own mind, mulling over what that meant and trying on what it meant for me. And I thought about it and I said, at that moment, I was going to shift and make a decision that I would no longer apologize consciously or unconsciously for who I was and that I wanted to be unapologetically black and unapologetically a woman. I thought it was a bold statement that maybe some people don't see as being so gee whiz, but it felt gee whiz to me at that moment in time and where I was as a person and in my development. And it was just transformational as an idea. And I've held on to it ever since then.
0: What did that mean in practical terms, in terms of how you dealt with business, how you dealt with relationship, how you dealt with family? How did that realization change you on a day-to-day basis
3: or a year-to-year basis? Well, I felt in some ways that I was trying to unconsciously be small. And what I mean by that is just not ruffle any feathers, not get overly noticed. And as a result of that, I was limiting the potential. Now, I say that and you listen to me and you say, well, you know, you're not shrinking violet. But I just think of things that I did and said at the time. The example that I gave was after that happened, I was standing with a woman at a conference and she and I literally were talking about dresses. And one of my colleagues walked up to us and she said, oh, I'm sorry, this conversation must be so boring to you. And I stopped her and I said, no, we were having a having a conversation. He walked up to us. And how many times have we had conversations where guys stand and talk about sports that we may or may not be interested in, and they've never apologized to us for that. Yeah. yeah. So why are you apologizing?
0: Yeah. No, it's funny. I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine and talking about the ways in which I also know Shrinking Violet and in a very different world than you. But I know I love engaging in the world of ideas and I'm ambivalent about it. But in order to operate in that world, I have to also not be small. Sometimes I think women are trained and African-Americans and other people of color are trained that it is self-protective to not claim as much space as you can claim because you can frequently be disappointed when you try to claim that space.
3: Well it's interesting, and it's you know, it's not to suggest in any way I'm trying to scream from the rafters, but I just noticed little things about myself. Just very, very small things. And and I decided that I would shift. I remember like if I had my hair slicked, I would say, Oh, I didn't get my hair done today. I'm like, who cares? Why am I saying this? Yeah. You know, why do I feel that I have to say that to someone? You know, what context? Or do I believe they're looking at me and looking for some answer? It's little things that ultimately you realize are like um, death by a thousand cuts of a person. But they were self-inflicted. I'm not blaming the world and I am not a victim. It was just me taking ownership of who I was and am and, you know, living in the world in a different way. Not threatening and not threatened.
0: Yeah. Well, you've been talking out in TED Talks, in in your many speeches about the different issues that matter to you, whether it is financial security or whether it's race relations. How does your work at Ariel play into your desires to see people have financial security? I mean, you're someone who definitely has a mission-driven
3: approach to the work that you do. Well, it's interesting. I once heard Charles Schwab, say, at Schwab, they feel like they're curing cancer. And I was like, so do I. You know, people have this lens or view of people like me who are in the investment business, who are big believers in capitalism and a capitalist society, which I am, with the social safety nets and programs to, of course, protect those who, who can't. But I really do believe that. I wake up every day saying to myself, the work that I do lets people send their kids to college and lets them retire and lets endowments have more money to pay for educations, whatever it might be, as it relates to the individual clients that we have that are institutions or individuals or maybe someone's 401k plan that we're contributing to in terms of the investment performance that we generate that, again, allows them to retire. So these are, in my mind, valuable and important efforts. But this vantage point from which I sit also and how I grew up, et etc, also convinces me that financial security is worth pursuing for society and for individuals. And the less financially secure you are, the more likely you are to have a host of other problems, not to mention the financial ones, but literally there's a direct correlation between financial health and physical health, as an example. So there's a whole host of issues that are embedded in this work that to me is, as you correctly assess, my life's work that is about a better society, So I'm kind of all in on this issue. And a lot of the opportunity that I've seen is that my voice has been unique, not so much anymore, but certainly in the early days. And the Ariel as a company was so unique in being the first minority-owned investment management firm to ever start. But in being out there and recognizing some of the differences that occur between the races when it comes to investing allows me to call out issues that hopefully can cause particularly minority investors, to shift so that we can rise up to the same level of investment as our white counterparts. You're
0: listening to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. We're listening to a 2015 conversation from my former podcast, One with Farai, with the co-CEO and president of Ariel Investments, Melody Hobson. One of the things that I've been looking at and studying is you know, wealth discrepancies between the races And right now, African-American families have one thirteenth of the wealth of white families. That gap got as small as, you know, six times the factor versus 13 times the factor during the later part of the Clinton years. And do you think that we have the ability to reverse this trend of kind of
3: moving further apart in the racial wealth gap? Well, I love that one Obama quote, there's never been anything false about hope. I always have hope. And I'm actually a big believer that America solves its problems. That's one of the things that Warren Buffett, the great investor, always says. America solves its problems. So if you come at that, the world through that lens, which I do, I actually think anything's possible. But I do think it requires a conscious effort. And I do also think it requires a tremendous amount of education. But I think these things are possible. I mean, at just a basic level, we should have financial instruction in schools, I'm not talking consumer economics on, you know, how to write a check or pay a light bill. I'm talking understanding what is the Dow, the NASDAQ, and the S&P? What is the difference between a stock and bond? You know, these kind of questions that ultimately knowing them could make a huge difference in an individual's life, change the dynamics of their ability to pass on wealth, change the dynamics of their ability to retire comfortably, you know, understanding the power of compound interest. These are things that should be taught, and we actually have the ability to do that. This is not so radical as an idea, but it's radical in its execution. You
0: also serve in many different ways. I want to talk about corporate board service, which is very different, but also community outreach and with after-school matters and other ways of reaching young people. What do you do with After School Matters and why does that
3: organization matter to you? After School Matters is a program that was started by Maggie Daly, who was first lady of Chicago, married to our mayor, Mayor Daly, Richard Daly, who was mayor for 21 years in Chicago. She started a program from scratch and um, basically had this idea that she would create after school opportunities for Chicago's public school kids and pay them to come. And it was actually a brilliant idea. And it's two decades long in terms of its program history. But we now provide after-school opportunities, 22,000 unique after-school opportunities and summer jobs over the course of a year. And the one thing about these teens, I always joke that it's like when you see them in these programs, we have 600 programs and they can take everything from opera to hip hop dance instruction, to ballet with the Joffrey, they can paint, they can do mosaics, they can do animation, they can do ceramics, they can do horticulture. I mean, I could farm to table. I could go on and on and on. She wanted whatever interest they had for there to be an opportunity to pursue that interest. And that's what we've done. And when you go and visit these programs or see these students, it's like, you know, teens get a bad rap in our society. And yet it's just the opposite. It's like this happy place. And you meet these teens who have overcome extraordinarily obstacles. I mean, you know, I've had my issues, but they pale in comparison to some of the stories that I've heard from our teens of teens literally being homeless, their parents addicting them, you know, parents who are drug abusers. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And yet they have these dazzling smiles and this amazing spirit. And so it's one of these programs that is deeply successful in changing lives, but where I feel a deep connection. I'm the first chairman, other than Maggie Daly, who passed away a few years ago. You know, she was the chair the whole time. And I said, I think Maggie left After School Matters to me because she knew I would feel so strongly about these teens and consider this another aspect of my life's work. So it's been an exciting program to be a part of. And every day we get to see amazing things happen.
0: I want to ask you a couple quick questions about your personal life. You, for many years, were the partner of and now are the wife of George Lucas. Were you a Star Wars fan before you met him?
3: <laughs> Isn't everyone? <laughs> oh, that's a political answer. <laughs> I know I was. I have told George... I think Star Wars was the first movie I ever saw in my life in a movie theater.
0: Oh my gosh, that's so funny because I remember as a kid, I was a huge fan and my family went, we were gaga over it and then later we brought a kid who was one of my friends and she was just bored out of her mind. She just couldn't relate.
3: Oh no, I had a crush on Lando Calrissian. Oh yes, Billy Billy Dee. I thought he
0: was just like the greatest thing ever. The bee's knees, absolutely. (laughs) And so now you have a child together. You had been co-parenting some of his children but you have a baby, a young girl together. How has that changed how you think about your life's work since you
3: are a very mission-driven person? It's actually made me more committed to it. I wake up every day thinking that I want my daughter to be proud of me. Mm. I want her to look back and say that I was proud of my mother, that I did all these things with, you know, intention and presence and energy and that she not only has that as a role model but feels good about it so I think people always talk about being proud of their children and I see it actually the other way I want her to be proud of me yeah so you know it's been a gift I mean people always talk about it you don't understand it until you're going through it but it's been a wonderful thing and it's been wonderful to see learnings through the eyes of a child and it's actually given me a lot more perspective I think and more capacity for empathy and for love that's
0: beautiful Just quickly, one thing that I didn't talk about in your business life is that you're on these amazing boards, including Starbucks. And something that has been an issue in American business is that there are just not that many women on power boards or even not powerful boards. So how do you begin to change the game with that? I mean, I think, you know, let's say your daughter goes into finance and she wants to do something like what you're doing. How do we change the game with corporate boards and women?
3: Well, we've done it by, we have started an organization called the Black Corporate Directors Conference. We do a conference every year with Russell Reynolds and Deloitte as our co-sponsors. And we convene all the Fortune 500 Black directors, because this isn't just a woman issue, it's a diversity issue in terms of race and gender. And in both situations, we have a long road ahead of us. So in convening these directors, we've actually created a call to action, which we call the three P's, where we're asking companies to really measure themselves on people across all levels of the organization, purchasing, do they do business with minority community, and philanthropy, Where do the philanthropic dollars go? Do they go to civil rights organizations, diverse organizations, et cetera? And if we can start there, we can change the paradigm and the conversation inside of the boardroom. So that's been my contribution. we're now, I think, 13 or 14 years in on this, in this work. And it's been remarkable. And we've seen changes happen, not fast enough, but at least we're not as we like to say at Ariel, admiring the problem. We're trying to do something about it.
0: That was co-CEO and president of Ariel Investments, Melody Hobson, talking to me in 2015 on my former podcast, One with Farai. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm host and executive producer Farai Chidea. Jonathan Blakely is our executive producer. Nina Spensley is also executive producer. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister and Tracy Caldwell are our booking producers. Steve Lack and Anoa Shanga are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Kelsey Kudak is our fact checker. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at 3Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Schild and engineered by Archie Moore. Devin Robbins produced the One with Farai interview with Melody Hobson. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.